Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So, so far, we like to start out our episodes by checking in on our work week and making connections to the topics we've previously discussed. Last week, uh, Judith and I were co-presenters at a virtual conference, and the theme was actually about coping in a time of change. So we actually talked about making this podcast. Talk about meta, right? At any rate, we've talked at length, I think, in the past about what it would look like or feel like to attend a conference virtually. So you did, what did you think? This isn't the usual way you typically attend a conference these days, although you've attended many, many times in the past as a presenter and facilitator. How did you like our virtual presentation or what were your thoughts on this? It was really interesting. It was very different from anything I'd done in the past. And of course, more recently, I haven't attended panels as much as just sort of enjoyed the hustle and bustle around it and the uh, exhibit hall and whatnot. But the conference presentation itself, I thought actually went really well. I had no concerns about being on a virtual panel. The technology was easy enough. There, I didn't have any any issues. Luckily, I will have to give a shout out to my husband. I overslept that morning and he texted me and was like, don't you have that thing? And then... <laughs> And and he was like, all right, let me let me get that set up for you. So he moved basically my entire office equipment from the room that's adjacent to the kitchen where everything was kind of busy with the kids. And my in-laws actually came for a spontaneous visit. And he took everything and moved it into the basement and set everything up while I sort of took my time waking up and whatnot. But anyway, that all went really well. I did sort of feel that it was a little strange not to participate in any of the surrounding events and then also just attending other panels. Usually, you know, when you go to a conference, you really immerse yourself in all of these larger conversations that sort of develop throughout the conference and the various panels that you attend. And with being home with the whole family and the this unexpected visit from the in-laws, I really didn't participate in any of the other panels. I looked at one on Saturday just to make sure that I understand how the technology works. But otherwise, it just didn't feel like I could really throw my attention into it. And I and so I didn't do any of it. And I think that was kind of a bummer. So I did miss that whole sense of really being away from the family, having sort of the reprieve of like the special trip that was just for me. Um, and so that was a little bit disappointing for me in the end. I think partially it was also because it was a pedagogy conference, it wasn't 100% relevant to things that I usually think about. And so maybe if it had been a little bit more dear to my heart, I might have attended more. But that was my experience. What, how did you feel about it? So I, I thought it was great that I didn't have to travel or that would definitely be like an added bonus because I get stressed out driving and flying and things yeah. like that. But weirdly... I had a really hard time getting up on time too. And that's just so funny because the last big conference I went to was in Seattle. And so there's like a three hour time difference. And I just remember I was up like every day at like 4.30 because, you know, that'd be 7.30 our time and like ready to go. Uh, what's the first conference panel that I'm going to attend to? And I think there's something about sort of being sequestered to that space that is important for me. I also have attended conferences. I know the Louisville conference on culture. There is a shuttle bus 
that basically would take us from the Brown Hotel, which is this like beautiful, famous hotel in Louisville. And then it takes you to the college campus. And so then you're just kind of there all day and you don't leave. And so there's something kind of meaningful about that because there are no distractions like you suggested. I felt like it was much easier for me to be casual in the sense of like attendance. I felt like it was easier for me to become distracted as opposed to when I'm in a hotel conference room, taking notes, really immersing myself in the subject matter because there were all the other people in my home. And it was just easier for me to get up and maybe take a break, which is probably a good thing, but I never do that. In a conference panel, I just always try to be ultra respectful. I don't think I've ever left a panel session early because I just feel like it's so rude in a way. And that's probably me and my hangups, but I would be kind of mortified if someone got up and left in the one of my panels. So I don't usually do that. But during this, it's a lot easier, right? You just go turn your video off. And, you know, I think it's a little bit harder sometimes to bring focus. I liked the conference itself. I actually, because I am teaching, the pedagogy was interesting. There was a really great panel on grade negotiations, which I just was like so enthused by, which sounds odd, but it was a panel of three scholars and they had done a study, a data collection and survey of different um, grade appeals that students have made. And, you know, they had an IRB to do this and they actually sought out a like campus-wide email. Um, I think they're at three different college campuses to solicit if you're a student and you've had one of these grade, you know, if you wrote a professor about a grade change, would you be willing to be in our study? And it was just really fascinating because they started talking about the culture of consumerism and shifts in academia, which suggests that as professors, we're more like customer service representatives and that there's this whole culture of I pay for this. And one thing that just, this is so bad, but I thought it was so funny. They're like, you know, these are students that have grown up in the culture of the Karen, Karen and Ken, this complete (laughs) culture where they've seen and observed their parents or guardians complain about things and, you know, go to the manager and make that change and that they feel obligated almost that that's due to them, right? If you make this complaint that something's going to happen, you're going to get the bump up in the grade. So I found that one to be really super interesting because I've had experiences where students have asked for grade bumps and things like that. And I just, I, I like that part of it. It's always nice to hear people that are kind of dealing with the same situations and things like that that I am. So I like that part of it. I was really uptight about the tech issues. That's just my nature, getting a little type A and kind of thinking about, oh my gosh, how's it going to work? And it was really simple. It was just Zoom again. But um, it made me think, okay, I could probably do this again. There were some some setbacks, like I said, of being at home. But I would try it again. It gave me the impetus to try something new. And ironically, or perhaps not by chance, but by choice, this brings us to the topic of this episode, which is the fixed mindset as opposed to a growth mindset. So, Yudit, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit more about this concept? Sure. So today we want to talk a little bit about this concept that you just mentioned. And before we will, we'll talk a little bit about what the research says about what this concept is, how the research developed around this issue. We'll think about how this plays out in the different areas of our professional and our personal lives. So we'll think about our role in academia and as well as our lives as parents. Judith, how do most people define this idea of growth mindset and how is it different from the quote fixed one? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Let's start with uh, outlining that a little bit more. So according to Stanford University professor of psychology, Carol Dweck, who is credited with coining this term, a growth mindset is the belief that you can cultivate and improve upon your abilities through practice and effort. So it's this idea that if you come up against a struggle, if you come up against something that you don't know how to do, there's always this sort of applied yet. I don't know how to do that yet. So this differs significantly from a fixed mindset, which dictates that a person's ability is largely predetermined and unchangeable. So we see this a lot in our children. Actually, the the first time that I came across this was one of my daughters, my older daughter's um, preschool teachers introduced the term to me. And she said, when we look at how children respond to um, struggles, and there are some that will take it as a challenge that will sort of try to figure out how to conquer this challenge, how to improve their skill set. And then there are others that sort of struggle to overcome the sense of, if I don't know how to do it now, then I will never know how to do it. So intuitively, it seems that a growth mindset, it seems obvious that a growth mindset would be more beneficial than a fixed mindset. We would obviously all want to believe that we can improve and do better. But the question is, does it always play out in both our professional and our work lives, right? And so even thinking back to grad school, it seems that in grad school, if one wants to succeed in grad school, there would have to be the sort of growth mindset to be able to make it through all of those challenges that we've discussed you know, throughout periodically throughout our podcast. Thinking back to my own experience in grad school, the way that you make it through grad school really is defined by how much of a growth mindset you have versus a fixed mindset in a lot of ways. I actually talked to my husband about this before, uh, like a couple of days ago when we started talking about this topic for the episode. I think that that was definitely a struggle for me during grad school. Um, you know, one of the ways that that shows for me is, as I've said before, I don't, I'm not much of a reviser. I don't revise my writing a lot and I outline and then I write and then either it's, you know, the way I want it or it's not, but I'm not very good with sort of like when I get feedback on it and somebody says, you should make these edits. It's really hard for me to accept that feedback. So I think that's an interesting sort of thing to think about where would you place yourself and what was your grad school experience like in these terms? So I, like you, I'm kind of back and forth with this because I want to say, oh, it was fixed, but there's no way I would have gotten through this if I maintained a fixed mindset simply because the use of feedback and review and notes, I think it's a way of life in graduate school. Some of the smartest people that I know that entered with our cohort didn't finish. And you and I have talked about these studies and these retention rates, and we know that it has nothing to do with that student's intellectual capacities. In many cases, these were some of our best and brightest and, you know, well-spoken and interesting students had nothing to do with their capacity to learn or to write or any of those things. And so I have to wonder sometimes if the growth versus fixed mindset plays a role in why some PhD students simply don't finish. For myself, I felt really encumbered by this idea that I just wasn't getting academic writing in the past, I've worked as a journalist and writing these short stories and articles and news writing and that kind of thing, which I've talked about, but it just felt like I wasn't getting it, which is why my dissertation writing took so long. 
I think though I must have the qualities of a growth mindset because I had to go back again and revise again and revise again. And there was never a chapter where (laughs) I just got the okay sign off. It was always something. And so I think I must have taken on some of those qualities of a growth mindset. This is a lot different from when I was younger though, because I do remember just getting so frustrated and angry about things and just being like, I just can't do this. I don't think I would have finally defended and walked across that stage if I was stuck in that um, fixed mindset. So that's kind of how it played out in my role as a graduate student. But I kind of wanted to jump back and think about how this might play out as we teach other students. A lot of our listeners are also working with students right now, working with students in this time. Um, I have a note in here about don't say the P word, Erin, and the P word is pandemic, of course. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to mention it, but I could see where this would be a time where it is kind of hard to have a fixed, or it's hard to develop a growth mindset where we're in this like very funky time and place. I first heard about the term during an academic book club meeting, and it was one of those concepts, kind of like the other things we've talked about this year that just immediately resonated with me. And so I found the concept in a textbook. Um, it was a book that we are sharing as a group, and I'll include a link to that. It's called Teach Students How to Learn, Strategies You Can Incorporate into Any Course to Improve Student Metacognition, Study Skills, and Motivation by Sandra McGuire. And so we were actually reading this book at my campus together. I thought it was a really great way of promoting collegiality. It was really fun. I don't know if other folks have campus book clubs, but I just really enjoyed that time and space to think meaningfully about uh, a book that I was reading. It kind of reminded me of grad school, which is probably why I liked it so much. But the main focus of the book is the value of this growth mindset and this idea that every student can learn. We know when our students are able to leverage the power of metacognition or thinking about their thinking, and the more they know about learning strategies, they're equipped to succeed. We found that a lot of students just don't have the basic study skills. No one's ever taught them how to like break down a textbook or learn how to learn, which sounds like a basic concept, but it's one of those assumptions that sometimes is made in a college classroom, right? Not everyone knows the Cornell system of note-taking. Not everyone is familiar with maybe using a journal such as the way you do or mapping out an organizational plan. So we have to teach them this. And this book really maps out a really clear cut plan chapter by chapter of helping your students develop a growth mindset, which I thought was really interesting. And this again, for me, for a lot of our folks that are out there in the fields of education, they're going to be really familiar with Bloom's taxonomy. That was something that was new to me. I don't know if you were ever introduced to the taxonomy in your studies. It was new to me as I started reading this book and the more and more I was immersed in some of the um, training programs at my college. We have a really robust center for teaching excellence. And so this is a big part of our teaching philosophy is this idea of Bloom's taxonomy, which for some of you is going to be like, yes, obviously, Aaron, that's a really um, clear cut pattern that we all want to follow. But it's this idea of kind of giving students these critical thinking skills that kind of build upon one another. They're like almost scaffolded and helping them move from the really basic, just like rote memorization all the way up to like application and reflection and building new ideas. And and this book also focuses on metacognition, right? Thinking about your thinking. And that's a really big, huge buzzword. It has been for the 10 years that I was in grad school anyway. Um, And so this book really emphasizes placing these high expectations on students, but that they can achieve what they want with a growth mindset. And how many times in a composition classroom have we met that student that says, I'm just terrible at writing. 
I've never been good at it. I just hate it, you know, and we try to unpack that and sort of unravel that. I've met so many students, especially in the composition classes where they're like, I just am not good at writing. And I'm like, let's try to figure that out. What are you not doing well? What can you do well? What have you done? How did you plan out this essay? And sometimes, and a lot of times the worst, (laughs) the worst examples, it's like, well, I sat down, it was due at midnight. I started writing at, you know, (laughs) 10. Did you proofread it? No, I didn't really have time. Okay, well, that might be one reason why you're not getting a really great grade. Did you really read the directions before you turned it in? I looked at them. Well, did you look at the rubric? No. And, you know, so there's reasons. There's a lot to unpack when a student says they just are terrible at writing. You know, we really need to, like, think and help them see through it. So this book kind of talks us through, like, 10 metacognitive strategies, such as previewing, preparing, paraphrasing, the idea of active reading. Um, that's something that I've really had to help my students with of like the idea of not just like going on autopilot, scanning things, but you know, the kind of deep reading that we do, which includes annotations, marking up the text. I have found that students don't know how to do that. That's not something they've necessarily done in high school. I remember also talking to you probably five years ago about summarizing big ideas and how that's a real struggle for students as well. I remember having this conversation with you, just like students don't know how to take something and summarize it. So we have to teach them. We have to teach them to kind of preview. Um, It also talks about teaching them how to use a textbook. Judith, that sounds like something that's just so obvious, but we have to think about who we are and what we do and what our passions are. I've had students that didn't necessarily know how to use the glossary in a textbook or the table of contents or the index and like using the technology of the book as it is like, oh, wow, I didn't know I could look up a word and find it. And I'm not disparaging the students. They just haven't been taught this. I think people make assumptions about what they come to the classroom with. And we can't do that. So in order for students to move to this growth mindset, we have to sort of help them do that. The book also talks about teaching them how to take notes by hand, which is something that not all students are comfortable or well-versed in. So another really cool thing that the book outlines is helping students teach other students. It suggests that this is a really good way of having them master concepts and information. And then, of course, creating good and viable study groups and finally creating and using practice exams. So all of this could play a great role. And then it asks them to actively participate, um, asking questions formulated in this preview step. And I think this is interesting because a lot of my students are not as vocal about posing questions. And I think this can really play a role in their success. And I think this might compound the fact if they are already in that sort of fixed mindset, they just keep thinking, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm bad at writing. I'm bad at composition. I've had other times where I was teaching literature courses, and I love literature. I think it's like a pretty fun class to teach. But the same thing, I've had students that are just like, I just don't get this. This is a weird book. This is a weird poem. I don't understand. I'm not good at interpreting poetry. I never have been. I don't know what you're asking of me. And so I think this book by McGuire kind of leads us through ways that we can help our students shift their own thinking about their learning capabilities and moving them from this very fixed mindset, which is I am bad at writing or I am bad at reading to I can do this. Here are some practical ways that I can start moving uh, to be a successful student in these classes. And so I think this is interesting as we are both parents that many of these um, notions that go along with this fixed mindset probably start pretty early on in life, right? That there might have been a time and a place where I decided 
I'm not good at math. Mm -hmm. I don't do well at math. I'm never going to go forward with math. I'm bad at math. And I'm not. I think I'm fully capable. But there had to be a moment in my life where I was just like, nope, not for me. I'm not good at it. Um, I'm much better at writing and reading. And that's my forte. So I thought it would be interesting, and you did as well, to kind of think about how this plays a role not only in our academic lives, or in your case, the alt-academic life, if you will, our professionalism, but what this looks like for parents. How do we take note if our children are maybe already in that fixed mindset? What do we do to help them transition to a growth mindset? And you've had some experience reading and thinking about this. So what do you think, Judith? Yeah, I think what you're mentioning earlier, what I really like about the research that you presented was just the way that students are being put in charge of their own learning and just to hand hand over that responsibility to them, right? What you're describing, your experience with math really resonates with me too as a, you know, because when I was growing up as a kid, I had this idea that, you know, I was good with languages and some of the social sciences. And so I would always, you know, I would be much more willing to work hard in those areas to get the grade that I wanted. I remember specifically there was a time in high school where I didn't get the grade that I wanted in English. And I thought that that was just outrageous and preposterous. And so I really put everything into um, into getting the grade that I wanted and that I thought I deserved. Whereas in other areas like math and not so much math for me, but the sciences, the sciences for me were always like, oh, I don't know how to do this. And if I had gotten the same grade there, I would have just been happy and walked away with it and never had that same sort of interest in dedicating myself to earning the higher grade. And so I think that mindset, you know, the idea of the mindset really resonates with me there. And I think it also shows how it can be sort of like a split. Um, It doesn't have to be applied. It doesn't have to apply to like everything and how we tackle everything. It can be sort of more compartmentalized. That being said, I think generally speaking, you're right that it starts very early in life. And I think you and I have both, both observed certain attitudes in our kids where it's easy for them to say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm stupid. I'm dumb. Uh, I can't do this. And so there's a, there's a lot there. And I, you know, and I, I've talked about this a little bit too before, but, and, and we've talked about it. I think that there's, there are a lot of ways in which we can foster a growth mindset already in the early stages at an early age in kids. And um, there are a lot of things that, that teachers and parents can do to sort of encourage that or discourage that. And so uh, a couple of the books that I read in sort of learning when I was trying to learn more about helping children develop this growth mindset were there's there's a couple really famous books that, you know, some of our listeners might be familiar with, but I'll um, I'll mention them anyways. The one book that I read that that I really found really helpful was uh, How Children Succeed by Paul Tuff, which talks about grit, curiosity those kinds of things. And then the other book that I found really insightful, and the author has actually been on uh, Dex Shepard's podcast recently and a couple other ones. The book is called The Gift of Failure. Jessica Leahy is a teacher and a parent, and she had some really, really insightful information and research about how important it is to allow our children to fail, because that is what helps them to develop that growth mindset, right? we have a tendency and I think parenting has become this thing where we're often showing up to save our kids. If they forget something, we will bring it to them. If they, you know, that kind of thing. Um, if they are struggling with math, how good are we about 
letting them sit with that struggle or that failure as compared to just sitting down and telling them how to do it. And so I think I found those two books really helpful because they sort of emphasize how important that struggle is in and of itself as compared to, you know, letter grades and things like that, that just sort of reinforce this idea that either I'm already good at something or I'm not. So I don't want to talk about this for too long, but I do want to make a brief mention of the way that gender plays into this, especially at a young age. So there is some research to indicate that already in the early elementary school years, girls tend to have more of a fixed mindset, whereas boys tend to have more of a growth mindset. And what that looks like is if a girl thinks of themselves as smart or intelligent, then that's a fixed trait that they don't have any control over, that they can't work with. So if they receive a poor grade on a math assignment or another assignment, I just had this happen with my daughter who was really, who's used, who's usually very strong in math. She got a poor performance on a math test and she was very upset about it. She came home and she took that to mean that she wasn't actually as smart as she thought she was. So we had to have that conversation about this is maybe something that you haven't covered enough yet. You haven't spent enough time mastering this skill yet. Um, But it's very hard for her to get behind that because she already is sort of like in this mindset of she thinks of herself as smart because she's had it fairly easy so far. And so then these pebbles in her path, if you will, she tends to take those a lot. She doesn't necessarily tend to take those in stride, if you will. She tends to be more thrown off by it because it sort of disproves this entire sense of self rather than being something that she can master in a future test and do better and then feel you know, good about herself for having, um, having mastered that skill. And thinking, thinking about all of that, Erin, how does that fit into your parenting So I think that all of my children have exhibited this fixed mindset mentality at different stages in their development. I think this has played a role in a lot of parts of our lives. This includes academics as well as athletics. Uh, There have been times where my children, I tried to encourage them to do maybe a sport and they just kind of were like, you know what, I'm just not good at this. I'm not good at soccer. I'm not good at track. I'm not good at volleyball. I'm not good at basketball. Those are the sports that we've tried so far. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and swimming too. And that's a difficult one because I want them to have a little bit of activity, a little bit of fun out there. But it's hard for me because I'm also not good at many of those things, you know. And I think that's where modeling can play a role because I might have exhibited that same behavior. Like, yeah, I'm just not good at this. I'm not an athlete, you know? And so it's really hard for me. I really have to like choose my wording well. In some cases, I've tried to push them into an activity that they didn't think they'd be good at, but I knew they would be. One thing that was really helpful that my son did for a number of years was this um, community theater group. And it was kind of a very informal theater group. You know, it was for kids of all ages. And I knew he'd be good at that because he had a really good memory. And he actually has a really good voice, like a good speaking voice. And I thought that would be a great way to showcase his talents. He didn't really want to do it at first, but it was almost like getting him to do it, you know, prove to him that he could. And Mm -hmm. one thing that you were talking about earlier that really resonated with me was this idea of the parent kind of stepping in and this idea that maybe sometimes we should let them have those failures. 
I often wonder if I'm doing them a little bit of a disservice when I do swoop in and try to save the day, right? right? That, (laughs) you know, it's hard for us to sometimes watch them as they have some of those failures, even though they are important. And so I might have been too hands-on in the past, but this just happened the other day with one of my daughters. Um, She brought home a math test that was quite low scoring. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get her to like, okay, let's see what you did wrong. And I asked her if she studied and she said, well, I didn't, I felt like I didn't need to. I felt like I knew all of it. And I'm like, well, the test shows a different story here. Can we work through this? And she just shuts down. She gets yeah. really emotional. She gets yeah. really negative. She is 11. So she's not terribly young. I mean, I know in the scheme of things, 11 is young, but she's not the youngest. And it's really hard to communicate in those situations. And I tried to say, okay, there was some with like exponents and she had an idea of how to do those and she got six of them wrong in a row. If she just would have known the right concept there, it's a pretty easy fix that would have brought her up to a passing score, but she just shuts down and I don't know how to get through. I don't know how to help her through that other than her just saying, I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I can't do this right, you know? And so I wondered if you have observed that, if that's just something in my family or does, do any of your kids uh, use that kind of language right now at all? This is fairly new for my daughter, but she just started um, bringing that kind of language home, if you will. I don't know if that was something, you know, that she's been hearing at school more or or where this is coming from. It's kind of new for us. But I had that same conversation when she just came home with that test. It was, I'm stupid. I'm dumb. I don't want to talk about it. And she completely shut down, too. There was no way for me to sort of get to her. And I have yet to bring that up again and try to kind of look at, okay, what, what were the things that, uh, what were the questions that you got wrong on the test? Do you know why? Because she gets very, yeah, she, and she, she gets angry. And so um, that's sort of, she gets very angry and combative. And so then I don't necessarily know how to dismantle that. And so I haven't, I don't have a good answer or a good approach to that problem either. I think it is important. And that's something that I'm struggling with too. And, and learning, although my sort of my workload and my, the fact that I am often a little scatterbrained helped me with that. She has started bringing homework home and I try to make that her responsibility. I know that when I was a kid, my mom was not making sure that I did my homework. It was, that was my responsibility to do that. And that's where I'm trying to get her to. But she's she, you know, she'll get it out and she'll start and then she gets distracted and then she, you know, and then she puts it away and then she plays something and then maybe she returns to it. And I try to stay out of that as much as I can and just be like, it is your responsibility to have that in your backpack in the morning when you leave. And if it's not there, then you're just going to have to face the consequences at school. But it's hard to do that sometimes. I think it's important to let them figure out what the consequences are when something doesn't get done, because then they can decide if it's worth it to them or not to get organized and to do those things on on their own. That's a challenge, too. And my children all seem to struggle with that. And I think you and I, again, we've talked about this before, but we were that kind of student when we were younger where my mom always says this to me. I just didn't need to tell you to do anything. You just did it. You, you know, you liked school and you were self-motivated. And that is true. That being said, when I do ask them, sometimes there is a response that's not pleasant. I feel like I start to nag them. And, you know, that can kind of be this cycle of just like me saying, okay, when are you going to do it? And then the ball's in their court. And I just feel like I'm asking them all day. Um, And I think this all really resonates with Dweck, who is the person, once again, that kind of came up with this term and this ideology of these mindsets. 
And all this seems to sort of speak to she's identified five key areas where people tend to vary in their mindset, which is effort, right? I think that really plays a role with how my children succeed. Yeah. Like how much work do you really want to put into this? And I see the same thing with my college students as well to kind of jump back to that. It's like, well, did you really put a lot of effort into it? You did this an hour before it was due and you're now you're like mad because you didn't do really well on it. Or you failed the math test, but you just said you didn't study because you felt like you got it. I mean, you can't, you've got to think about effort. She also mentions obstacles and what are those things that can be those distractions you just mentioned as well. I think sometimes in college, especially with the students I'm working with, sometimes their family members serve as obstacles. Sometimes work serves as an obstacle that, you know, oh, I'm really, really bad at this, but I actually worked a triple shift over the weekend. And so I didn't have a lot of time to spend on my homework. Okay, yeah. well, how can we reshift that thinking to remove some of these obstacles? Another place where people tend to vary their mindset is with challenges. And I think that's an interesting one as well. I think sometimes some students probably like you and I saw that challenge. You talked about that grade you got and kind of using that as the onus to like move forward. (laughs) Some students respond really well to challenges and want to be the best. I know that with my children, there's something that they do. And this is pretty common across the country. It's accelerated reader. You're supposed to get points for reading books. I would have been all over that. We had some, I don't know if this was something that again is American or maybe if when you're growing up in Germany, you had similar like contests, but we had reading contests um, to read the most books. And then there was like almost like a quiz bowl. It was called Clue Me In and you had to read like 20 or 30 books. And I was like, oh, I am on that. You know, like (laughs) I'm going to take that challenge. I'm going to run with it. My kids are just kind of like, oh, we need 18 points. So I got 18 points. There's other students in their school that are like, oh, we need 18 points. I have, you know, 75 now. And so it's just interesting how different students respond to challenges. And then one thing that we just mentioned is criticism. Can we take that criticism and use it to our advantage? This is something that resonates with me as a writer, probably with all the folks that have done some writing and defended a dissertation. How do we use criticism? But how do our children take that criticism as well? None of mine seem to respond really well to just, you could do this better, or maybe have you considered adding some details here? And then finally, what do you define as success? I think that's important as well. Going back to college students, I often ask them, like, what is your goal? What is your definition of success for this class? For some people, it's just passing. And uh, they have said now that a C- minus is considered passing in my composition class. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, if that's what you're aiming for, great. That's your that's your definition of success in this class. For other students, it's like, no, I need an A. My kids are all kind of like, yeah, I got Bs. That's cool. You know, <laughs> like I got a B without really putting in much effort. That's fine by me. I didn't really want to take the criticism or the challenge. So I'm happy with a B. And I kind of have to feel like I'm happy if they're happy because I don't want to put all this pressure on them. It is a little frustrating at times, but I don't want my mindset about what I define as success to be their definition. So when we're thinking about this, our kids are all kind of at different ages. You have done a little more reading with this. What are some ideas that are helpful for kids to sort of develop this growth mindset? And is this something that we can kind of start early on? How do we foster this within our families when it's something that I may have struggled with myself in the past? Right. I think that's a really big question. And there are some there are a lot of different ideas. What you were just talking about with the subsets of the growth mindset, the effort and obstacles and challenges, criticism and success. 
I think one thing that I want to add to that is that the extrinsic versus intrinsic uh, motivators play a big role in that. So I think that for me, I know what I was saying about earlier, I was very motivated by good grades. And I think, you know, you've said the same thing, like their grades were a really big motivator, especially in the areas that I found enjoyable. And so I think it's important to note that that's not necessarily a great way to engage kids all at all the time. Um, And so the intrinsic motivators are a lot more important, right? They have to sort of find an activity enjoyable. There's got to be something other than a grade at the end or a piece of candy or some other kind of external reward. And so a few things that I think are useful to use, I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about sports because as I was saying earlier, my husband was an athlete and we talk about this a lot. I think that sports are a really great way to foster growth mindset because there's always a new skill to be learned, right? So my daughter is really into gymnastics and she's just recently started playing soccer. The issue is, again, you know, with thinking about intrinsic and extrinsic motivators, it has to be a sport that's enjoyable to them. Like it's not going to work if you're forcing them into a sport that they don't like. You know, we first signed her up for soccer when she was four because it's sort of like a family thing. We all really love it. She was not into it at all. And so I think if we had sort of pressured her at that time to do it just because everybody else likes it, she wouldn't have done it for herself. She would have done it to please her parents or her grandparents or whoever else. Right. So, you know, and then we just sort of let it fall by the wayside. And now she it was her idea to go back into it to sign up again. She, you know, she practices with her dad. Um, and it's really enjoyable to her. And I think if that condition is a given, the sport in and of itself is enjoyable. I think it's a great way to foster a growth mindset because there's always a new skill to learn. And it's just or even just, you know, with gymnastics, it's like, okay, I mastered this new skill. With soccer, it's, you know, I scored a goal or I prevented a goal or whatever. There's there are just these things that that can be challenging. And then, you know, when you dedicate yourself, you have that immediate reward of, oh, wow, I did that. That's a really great way to do it. I was thinking of times for other sports that are individual sports. If you're a runner or a swimmer, it's -hmm. all about improving the time. And so it's like a personal best. And you're always setting a goal to be one second faster or two seconds faster. And so that, again, um, those individual sports can be really interesting and resonate with that as well. It's like, okay, I just want to shave two seconds off or four seconds off or whatever the goal is. I think that's a really motivational factor for a lot of young athletes as well. And you set your own goals, right? So that helps too. Whereas if, you know, your parents are pressuring you that you need to get all A's, that's not a goal that you have. That's a goal that somebody else has for you. Whereas to work on, you know, your own improvements, that helps to really want to achieve that and dedicate yourself toward it. Another thing that I have had a lot of positive experience with, and I don't want to do any um, advertising. I think people that are familiar with the product will recognize it, but we have a monthly subscription box with a science experiment. And so she got that for Christmas one year because we were just so like drowning in other toys that I have asked the grandparents to give something that's a one and done type of thing. Like it's an activity. And once you're done with it, you can get rid of the parts. So it's it doesn't add clutter. 
these are right at the level where they should be for my daughter. So she usually with each of the boxes that she's gotten, she has gotten to a point that included stomping and throwing and crying and being really frustrated. And then she usually works through it and gets to the end of whatever experiment it is that she's doing or whatever sort of thing she's trying to set up. And she learns science along the way. So that's something that I find really, really useful. And that has worked a great deal for us. And it's just so much more valuable than giving yet another toy (laughs) um, that, you know, just ends up, this is sort of like the gift that keeps on giving because she's still, you know, she gets something new every month versus you play with it for 10 minutes and then you put it in a corner. For younger children, so we've also heard from our son's um, daycare teacher that he doesn't really like to make mistakes. So already at the four-year-old level or three-year-old level, they can tell that that's a struggle for him. He doesn't like to make mistakes. And so he watches until he is 100% sure that he knows how to do it, and then he will give it a try. So we're working with him on that, too. And open-ended toys in that age group are really great. So like Legos or building blocks or things like that, where they can just sort of experiment and do whatever it is they, you know, want to create. It fosters creativity, innovation. So those those things are really great. And then one other thing that I do want to say is that what's really important, especially with the little kids, is that we watch our language. And that's something that I'm working on a lot. So instead of praising talent, we want to praise effort, right? So instead of saying if somebody comes home with an A, well, wow, you got an A, you're really smart, you're a natural. Instead of those things, praise the effort that the kids put into it so that they notice that that is sort of the desirable thing. That's the thing that we want to shoot for. So, you know, instead of saying you're really smart, you could say, well, you've worked really hard. I bet that felt really good to accomplish that. You know, what was something that was really difficult to learn? Where did you, um, what did you do that helped you master this skill? What were some strategies that that you used? Um, So we can have a conversation with them about really the process of getting that good grade that can help us emphasize and, and help them sort of see the process so that, you know, when they get to the, this is, this is what I do with her when she, when she works on that monthly subscription box, every time she hits that point now, I can be like, Hey, remember you hit that really difficult point last time. And then you work through it. And in the end you had binoculars or in the end you had this like wonderful thing that you could then play with. And so then that's the learning curve where they can go back to their past experiences and be like, Oh yeah, I already did this once. I can do this again. That seems to be really critical, too, to be able to draw on that past experience and say, wait, I've encountered a challenge like this before, and it was hard at the time, but I made my way through it. And I think that's really key there. I like that language that you're reframing it. Not so much like, oh, you're such a naturally smart, capable child, but what did you do this time that really led to that good grade? You know, how did you work on this? Let's let's keep using those and building on those habits. And you're talking about kind of the younger age. I just had found an interesting article too about how the mindset shift can be a really great way of helping at-risk adolescent students as well. This was a study I found from the UK and it's by Jaeger and a number of others. They write that one way to improve academic success across a transition to secondary school is through social psychological interventions, which change how adolescents think or feel about themselves and their schoolwork and thereby encourage them to take advantage of learning opportunities in school. 
I really did see a shift in my mindset from primary or elementary to the junior high. For us, that's grades like six, seven, eight, nine, usually, depending um, here and there. I I noticed, I remember that shift of kind of just going from being this person and this curious child to kind of a down and out adolescent. And so I think this type of intervention um, to teach them the growth mindset at that age, using this as a specific intervention, can really help um, lead the students to see their intellectual abilities not as fixed, but something that can grow in response to dedicated effort. And this study sort of talks about helping them through to try new strategies and seeking help when appropriate. I think that is something that's really, really helpful to like know when to ask for help. I, again, meet with a lot of college students that are like so thankful when I offer it, but also like, oh, I didn't know I could ask you for help or, oh, I didn't know that's what office hours were for. And I'm just, I always feel kind of bad. Like I'm your teacher. I meant, you know, they're surprised when I'm offering them help or guidance. And I'm like, no, that's my job. You can contact me, email me, let me know. Um, I had a person just this last week that was like, I'm sorry. I just really didn't get this assignment. And unfortunately, the assignment was completely wrong. And I just said, I really wish you would have just reached out and sent me this email ahead of time. You went through all this trouble of doing something that was not the right assignment. You could have just asked me for help. And I think the study that I found by Yeager suggests that this is really especially important in a society that conveys a fixed mindset a view that intelligence is is fixed, um, which can imply that feeling challenged and having to put in effort means one is not naturally talented and is unlikely to succeed. So I think sometimes in our society, we buy into this idea or it's perpetuated that, you know, people are just born intelligent or born smart or born gifted when in fact there should be some challenge in school. We still have right. to put in effort, right? We still have right. to, we still have to do the work behind it. And so I thought that was interesting as well. Everything we've been talking about today as far as parenting sounds reasonable, but I'm wondering if I can carry this idea into other parts of our lives, right? So I've discussed my own struggles with setting healthy lifestyle patterns. I myself was one of those athletes when you were talking about going into a sport for a parent that just conjured up all kinds of like strange memories for me because my father was an athlete. He was a swimmer that did really, really well. He even um, was awarded some scholarships to swim at some certain colleges, weirdly did not graduate from those colleges. My grandfather was an athlete. He played baseball. He was a gymnast. He was a runner. He played football. I felt like I was always pushed in sports and I just was just didn't feel like I was good at it. And it made me feel kind of really bad about myself. And I felt like even when I was on the swim team, I just didn't get any better. And I felt like I'm never going to get any better at this. So I wondered if like what we're talking about could play a role beyond our roles as parents and beyond like kind of what we see in school. There I was okay with like learning and growing and taking in the feedback could this uh, play a role in other dimensions of our lives, like being healthy or trying yoga or trying something that we haven't tried before? Yeah, I think that I've tried a lot of different ways to sort of create habits. And I think what's most important there is to just give, you, give yourself a lot of grace, especially with everything that we have going on in our lives. 
So when you try to make a new habit, one big example is when you're trying to um, change, like be on a diet or change your change the way you eat. It's just so important to allow yourself slip ups and to understand that those don't mean that you're not capable of doing it at all. So like when you're when you're trying to form a new habit and you've done it like, you know, whatever, 12 days in a row and on day 13 you slip up. Some of us have the tendency to just be like, well, then I might as well just quit altogether as compared to being like, OK, well, here's a day where, you know, it didn't work out so well, but I can just pick it back up tomorrow and I'm still in a better place than I was 12 days ago. So I think that's really important. You know, there's also the sort of like self-destructive behavior where the dieting example, again, you know, you you think you're on a diet, you have some ice cream and then you're like, well, now I broke my diet, so I might as well just eat a bag of chips and and a cake after that as well. So just to sort of allow yourself the little slip ups and to understand that they're part of the process, I think can help with um, really implementing those lifestyle changes without sort of adding the guilt you know, you slip up, you feel guilty about that. And then you also add on to that the big baggage of like, oh, I can't do anything right. That's not helpful and doesn't help you move forward. It can be hard. It's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about because it's a it's a pattern that I tend to fall into. That's something that I would say in, in that regard is just to give yourself a lot of grace and think about think about changing patterns as a process that has fallbacks every once in a while. Some people use that adage one day at a time, but it really is. You just kind of do that behavior or work on that behavior for this one day. You're not trying to aim forward, you know, 365 days in the future. Just, okay, I did pretty well today with this new behavior. I feel proud of my results. I'm going to keep growing and building on that. And one thing that came to my mind is that I'm going to be honest there, listeners. I had a really bad attitude about yoga. I had, (laughs) I'm going to tell you this. I had a really bad experience where I decided to sign up for some prenatal yoga for one of my pregnancies. And I was already feeling self-conscious because I have a tendency, again, to gain quite a bit of weight during my pregnancy. And I went and there were a lot of people there that were really seemingly really familiar with yoga. Like they knew this stuff inside and out. And I'm there for my very first class feeling pretty uncomfortable in my own skin. And I just, I had such a bad attitude about it because I was watching all these other people and like what they were doing instead of just kind of focusing inward. And I just like, and I didn't even go back. And I just completely gave up because I didn't like what I was seeing. And I felt like I'm never going to be able Mm -hmm. to do this. That was probably 10 years ago. And I still had this like residual like, oh, yoga. But then I came to my job and I had this supervisor that is just this amazing human being who she not only is a medical doctor, but she is a trained and certified fitness instructor as well. And we had yoga and she invited me to the class and I like kind of couldn't get out of it because she was my boss. And I really had no excuse because it was free. It was during work and it was like a way to sort of break up my day, especially on some of those long 10 or 12 hour days I had. And it was hard at first, but oh my gosh, I I just, I think of the motivations were there and it was just like every week I felt myself getting better and better and stronger and stronger. And it was just really neat to see like physically how your body can kind of just respond to that. Like after a while, it became easier and I really love those 
spaces and sessions. And so it was something that I thought I would never do. And then I finally was like, oh, I get why everyone loves yoga so much. Because, I know, right? You know, yeah. I was just like, oh, whatever. I felt so bad. Like it was just something. And so I wonder if that's like applicable to other parts of my life as well, where something that I've avoided or I thought would be tough based on one little experience, maybe I needed to branch out and try it a few more times because I loved it. I thought I just I remember the first time I came home from the first class, I just felt awesome. Like, I'm like, I feel so good tonight. Wow, what is up with this? And so it was something that I really missed out on for a good 10 years because I had one negative experience. And I think that can be something that sort of plays a role into this like fixed mindset. We have an experience that's not particularly great with something. It could be with receiving feedback in a journal article, or it could be some words or a grade that received in grad school or something with a publisher or editor. And we use that and kind of say, forget it. I'm never trying that again. I think to sort of move beyond that, we have to say, you know what, that was one isolated experience. Let's try it again. And I was really pleased with the results. So I'm really glad we've been talking about this today plays such a big role in how I help my kids become citizens of the world, so to speak, and move on and feel comfortable in their own skin. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything else you'd like to mention before we sign off for the day? Yeah, I will say that in a lot of ways, this podcast has been that thing for me. I think that, you know, I've had this, I carried this idea around for a little while, and I just never really felt up to it. And just, you know, having having you jump on and say, hey, let's do this. This is a great idea. And then, you know, some of the you know, some of the struggles. And I think, it, you know, maybe it's fun to share those with our listeners. Some, you know, when we first started out, uh, we had some issues with the technology and we could have said after the first recording, you know, let's scratch this. This is too hard. And the way that we've worked through some of these struggles and figured out what technology to use and how to make this happen, I think has really worked that way for me and has really helped me sort of think about how can we work this out. That's something in my life recently where this plays out. That makes complete sense, right? This was a challenge. We're still growing. Uh, we have played around with different technology. This is all very new to us. So I think that's absolutely a really great example of growing every time. We feel like every time it gets better and easier and we grow as speakers and communicators. And so we're always happy to hear from our listeners about how we can grow and change and incorporate your ideas. So that's a good segue to our closing, Judith. If our listeners do want to contact us and offer some ways we can grow, where should they find us? We have recently received some more feedback that we are hoping to use to jumpstart some future um, episodes, and we would welcome some more of that. You can email us at phdinparentingpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Instagram where we are at PhD in Parenting. Remember also that you can like, share our episodes uh, with friends who might be interested. And if you leave a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts, that helps other people find us. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for sending your feedback our way. We look forward to continuing the conversations offline. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. 